is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And together we are your co-hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. And sometimes we like a movie so much that we have to cover it twice. Now, sometimes there's so much material for a movie, especially I think for these bigger animated movies, and especially as they become spaced further apart within this podcast due to Disney's growing live action output. We want to make sure we take the time to cover them as deeply as we can without making episodes that are more than two and a half hours long. And so, thus, this is the second half of our Peter Pan episode coverage, whatever you want to call it. So you can either listen to, like, four hours of us talking about Peter Pan or, you know, watch it yourself and have less than two hours of time to commit. But, you know, one way you know more information than the other. So I guess I guess that's up to you. You could watch Peter Pan, listen to the first half of this, like, last week's episode, watch Peter Pan again, and then listen to this a week later, and you'll know even more about Peter Pan than maybe you ever wanted to know. (laughs) That does kind of blend our styles, since I always do research before watching and you usually do the opposite. I will say there's definitely value in watching it after learning this stuff, because there's so many things you see that you would not have been looking for otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. And just just to quickly recap, if you didn't listen to last week, we talked about the very long production history of this movie that goes all the way back to before we see models of these characters in 1941's The Reluctant Dragon. It was originally potentially going to be one of the much earlier Disney animated films. But due to things like World War II and communists, it does not get made until the 1950s. And so we are actually up to talking about the cast behind the movie. So starting off with Bobby Driscoll as Peter Pan, he was both the voice and the live action reference for most of the movie. Roland Dupree was actually the live action reference for the flying and fighting sequences. And so, you know, we've talked about Bobby Driscoll a lot this season. I feel like he is maybe the person we talked about most over the course of this season. But this is the actual last time we're going to talk about Bobby Driscoll. We mentioned in our Treasure Island episode his sort of tragic fate after this movie, even though the rec- the recording and filming for Peter Pan and the production of Treasure Island happened pretty much back to back. This movie takes a lot longer to be completed, obviously, because it's hand-drawn. So this is actually the last uh, Disney film starring Bobby Driscoll that was released by Disney. And so I, I personally think he does a really good job. And, you know, I was thinking about one of the, you know, coming soon to Disney DVD, like promo things that they had on all the discs. 
it opened with Peter Pan, you know, and Bobby Driscoll's voice being like, here we go from the like, you know, when they're over London. And so his voice as Peter Pan is fairly iconic for me, maybe just sort of accidentally. Like I said last time, I think that I somehow cobbled together a Peter Pan that didn't exist from the animation that I knew and the 2003 live action. So his voice actually kind of surprised me because it was not the voice I think of as Peter Pan. Like, the images worked. I could definitely, like, see that Peter Pan. But the voice was a little bit different than I expected. I guess a little bit older sounding than I would have thought of for, you know, the boy who never grew up. But of course, knowing what we know about Bobby Driscoll, it's kind of a, a an eerie thing that he is the boy who never grew up. It's not that he, you know, died as a minor or anything like that, but in a way he didn't really have his childhood because he was performing this much and then of course did not have a full adult life either. I I don't know. I always just think about the uh the glee curse. Have you heard of this, Ryan? I am aware of the glee curse. Unfor- I mean, unfortunately for the curse's existence, I guess. Um yeah, I just, I mean, obviously there's all sorts of different layers to the Glee curse and, and all of that, but like the fact that Naya Rivera had sung If I Die Young about dying in water and then she did is is just this kind of eerie thing. We talked about it with the no smoking short, mm-hmm. how it's mm-hmm. eerie that both Walt and the voice of Goofy died because of smoking. And I think that because of that, there's something kind of disturbing about Peter Pan for me with this movie, especially with how many theories there are out there that like Peter Pan is a metaphor for death. And when he gets the Lost Boys, he's either killing them or they just died and he's, you know, taking them to the next stage. I think there's definitely something kind of eerie for me with Bobby Driscoll in this role. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely see that. It's not something I've thought about before, but again, I think because just growing up with this movie, I had seen it so many times, you know, it sort of imprinted on me before I had all of this information <laughs> about it. And so I, I, I think that that's probably just a factor, but I totally get where you're coming from. I do think his performance is actually pretty good as Peter Pan. And it's interesting because his voice, it does sound more mature than it did in Treasure Island, even though, again, like I said, these are made roughly about the same time. He may have actually been a better voice actor than a on-set actor, based just based on this one performance, because I think he... Peter Pan isn't a, a character that has a big emotional range, but even in Treasure Island, his performance feels like a kid actor, and... With this, and again, maybe it's just because the animation is so good. I, I, I don't really know, but here the the actor his voice fades into the role a little bit more than he personally does in the live action stuff we've seen him in. I think that's something that's integral to how this came about and how it's talked about. There's actually a quote from Mouse Planet. The writer was talking about an interview with Margaret Carey, who we're going to talk about a lot more in just a couple of minutes. But she said that for his age, uh, Bobby Driscoll was one of the first young actors that she had ever worked with who thought about what he was saying. It was not just getting the line out. He thought it through and you could hear it in his voice in Peter Pan. 
He was ready to give that little extra on everything that we did. We had lots of fun and he was remarkable. And I think that's something that we'll see other points where, you know, sometimes the adults with the child actors are like, well, you know, there's there's mm -hmm. those of us who are mm -hmm. acting and then there's the kids who are there because they couldn't hire adults to play six-year-olds. And I think there's definitely a level of respect here that Bobby Driscoll really was going the extra mile, especially with the vocal uh, elements here that I think you can see in how others talked about him. I completely agree. And I really do like that quote because I feel like it, it sort of gets to the, the feeling that I was getting while watching the movie. Milt Call was the animator assigned to Peter and the Darling Children, even though supposedly he was more interested in drawing Captain Hook. And I think the overall character design of Peter works really well because to me, he comes across as like about the same age as Wendy, the way that they draw him, maybe a year older at most. And so I think that because the Wendy-Peter dynamic is such a big part of the story, I think that really makes sense. And it it fits the voice. And I do think, especially in the early in the movie, there's that bit of mischief with Peter Pan that really comes across. Yeah, I think we definitely get the mischievous, almost fae-like mm -hmm. vibes from that animation. Supposedly, while they were working on it, there were some arguments about essentially Walt didn't want it to be like a carbon copy of Bobby Driscoll. So there were arguments back and forth where they're like, you've got too much of Bobby in Peter and kind of playing for like, let's get his expressions, but not every detail of like who he actually is. Mm -hmm. I think that was definitely a good choice that it's not it's not a carbon copy of Bobby Driscoll. So it has kind of a life outside of him while also having such great detail work. I will say, according to the books, more or less, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, because there are several different versions, but Peter is basically a baby all the time, because like his whole origin story was, uh, according to J.M. Barry, children were once birds, and so birds eventually evolve into human children who forget to f that they know how to fly, and then they grow up. And basically, Peter forgot that he wasn't a bird anymore. So he started, like, flying away as a baby. And then we basically are told that Peter never grows up. So as far as I can tell, and I could, I could be wrong on this, like, the book version of Peter just is, like, a flying baby who can talk. And I, I much prefer, especially with the pseudo-romantic vibes going on with Wendy and Tiger Lily. I much prefer kind of the late adolescent, early teen kind of vibe that we get off of him. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And, and the whole Tinkerbell plotline really wouldn't work and you'd have to lean extra hard into the mommy aspect of it all. Like it would, it would just, it kind of breaks the the premise of the movie because it doesn't it just doesn't seem like a bunch of older kids want to follow a flying baby. Like, I don't know. It, it just I now have an image of like an infant sword fighting Captain Hook. I kind of want to like, see that though. I mean, now with CGI, they can they can make it a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> you know, but but I I really. You know, I think the way that this Peter Pan is with the hat and the feather and the green and his 
his little booties and everything. Like, I, you know, it, it's an iconic look, and it obviously matches the stage version of Peter Pan fairly well in terms of, you know, the overall aesthetic. It was really nice hearing Catherine Beaumont again so soon after Alice in Wonderland. And, and I think I mentioned last episode that as a kid, I never... I never once gave a thought that those were voiced by the same people because, you know, you're a kid and you don't really think about that kind of thing. But watching them in close in close proximity, you can hear that it's Catherine Beaumont's voice. And I think Wendy doesn't doesn't feel like the same character as Alice. But and I think Catherine Beaumont's not changing her voice. She brings a different feeling to Wendy. Like she is playing Wendy as a different character with different motivations and, and feelings and Alice sort of feels like the the wide-eyed kind of ma- like bratty. It's like a combination of like wonderment and brat is is Alice and then Wendy feels slightly more mature if only because she is sort of like like we talked about on the precipice of adolescence really and she is the older sister to John and Michael. They want her to be her mom and everything, but I think she still comes across as the right age as well. Overall, Wendy is this really interesting character because she's definitely a kid, but you get the sense that she likes playing the mom, that that is a role that she chooses for herself to some extent, as well as it being forced on her by Peter and the other boys. I will say the only point where I feel like she's too mature is when she's singing the song about your mother and mine. Her voice is so, and and this is just a point that I, I want to praise her, because it was actually discussed with Alice in Wonderland that there were songs cut, not because they didn't work for the plot, but because Catherine Beaumont couldn't sing them, which is fair. Small children are not usually the best singers. She sings that song so well and in such a mature voice that I was certain it had to have been dubbed in, and it wasn't. And to some extent, that's amazing. It's, it's very beautifully sung, but it did age her up in my mind because the singing is at a much more mature level than I think her speaking voice is. So that was a little bit difficult with me as regarding her age and her, her maturity level. But alongside, like you were saying, with her voice and all of the different kind of intentions and tones that she put into it, I want to, you know, once again, just kind of praise the animators, because in both Alice and in Peter Pan, Catherine Beaumont, as well as being the voice, is the live action reference for the characters. And Wendy, to me, looks nothing like Alice does. Mm -hmm. Like, they are such distinct looks. I mean, they have they have similar traits, but like when we were watching Cinderella, the young Cinderella is a carbon copy of Alice. It's literally just Alice thrown into Cinderella for a minute. And I I really appreciate how distinct Alice and Wendy feel both by voice and in the visuals, because it is the same voice. It is the same live action reference but so many kind of differences in the ways that it's played. Yeah, especially I think her facial expressions come across very differently between the two movies. Uh, I, I think that's a really great point. And it, it makes me feel, the, you know, the, the inner child part of me that never thought about that before feels better 
knowing that we think they're as distinct as they are. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think she's really great as Wendy. And then my favorite vocal performance probably in this movie is uh, Hans Conried as both Captain Hook and Mr. Darling, as is tradition from the stage. Typically the same actor plays both the dad and Captain Hook. Uh, spoiler alert, that is not the case in the movie Hook. <laughs> I Obviously, I love Dustin Hoffman as, as Hook. That is an iconic performance in my mind. But going back to Hans Conried, his tenor and the way that he is able to sort of be like a, a stuffy British Yosemite Sam is what I'm going to land on. Okay. Like his the outbursts of anger that he gets, but his flair for like being very dramatic and everything, just the whole thing really just really works for me as a whole package. And we talked a little bit about how he doesn't seem like so much of a threat because like he's more afraid of the crocodile than he is Peter Pan, and the kids aren't afraid of the crocodile, so you don't have that sort of like it's like an enemy triangle, not like uh, a chain of everyone's scared of the crocodile, but the kids are more scared of Hook because he's the more immediate threat or whatever. And it does take some of the the scariness out of the character. But I, I also just really like that he is like a little bumbling, like he's convincing that he could kill Peter Pan. But it's like Peter Pan is thinking outside the box and outsmarting Hook more than as much as he's outfighting Hook. And I think that's. It's just a really fun detail, and I think the vocal performance does so much to bring that character to life, in addition to the amazing animation that's done. But that that voice work is great. And I also like that they do here when Peter Pan is imitating Captain Hook. They have Hans Conried's voice coming out of the Peter Pan draw coming out of, but like, you know, over the Peter Pan drawing, which I think is is the kind of thing that like makes animation great because you can make it perfect like obviously you can overdub an actor with another actor's voice in live action but like this it 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 has that magical feel uh where like in the moment you're like oh my god he's doing an amazing impression of impression of captain hook <laughs> and then like you step back and you're like oh right it's the guy voicing captain hook it it actually it literally is his voice <laughs> yeah so captain hook is is a tricky spot for me i feel like since I actually just read the book, I'm just going to continually be like, ah, it's not the book. I I love the Captain Hook that we get in the movie. But the Captain Hook we get in the movie is nothing like the Captain Hook we get in the book. And that's that's a weird spot for me because I love both of them in completely different ways. I, I really do think that uh, Hans Conried does a really impressive job with Hook. I... I really love when they're rescuing Tiger Lily and poor Smee is getting yelled at by real Hook and fake Hook. And I think that the frustration cockiness that are kind of alternating in the voice are really well done. I always think back to with uh, the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows movie when they had, let's see, how did they do it? So for Helena Bonham Carter... They had Emma Watson play Hermione playing Bellatrix so that Helena Bonham Carter could play Hermione playing Bellatrix in Bellatrix's body in a convincing way. 
Which is just so convoluted to basically say, like, this is what happens when we shapeshift characters. But I feel like there's kind of a similar degree of awe going on, especially with that scene, where, like, the voice is the voice of Captain Hook, but the tone is the tone of Peter Pan. And I think that that's mm -hmm. such a great thing. The point, the point that bugs me the most, I guess, is that, and it's, it's, it's teased in the movie, but there's this great thing in the book where it's basically says, the book has ridiculous stuff about Captain Hook. First off, he's either royalty or a celebrity. It basically says like he went to a prep school and if anybody even today found out who Captain Hook was in the real world, there would be tremendous shock over it, which I just love because I, I kind of imagine it as like, a Kardashian who just like went to another world and decided to be evil, which I, I just find very funny. But there's kind of this concept to the literary Captain Hook that he was raised in good form and bad form. And so everything he does is in the pursuit of good form. And the best mm -hmm. form is when you act with good form, but don't know that you're acting with good form. And so he has these kind of constant battles where he's like, oh no, is Peter more good form than I am? And he has kind of these rules that he has to follow. It becomes this really big deal in the battle between Peter and Hook that like, Hook does not care about killing Peter. He wants to destroy Peter's good formness. And so he kind of taunts Peter into kicking him into the crocodile's mouth. And so he gets his victory in Peter not playing by the rules, basically. And I love that element of the character, and I feel like they kind of got rid of it for the Disney movie. Which, to be fair, you don't have a narrator as much being able to say, like, ah, here's what you need to know about Captain Hook's past as a child in boarding school. But, like, the, the specific scene where he says, oh, well, if you aren't scared to fight me, then you won't fly. And Peter adheres to the rules and he's breaking the rules. That's such a backward scene for the movie uh, or for the book that, like, yes, he would make the rules, but he follows his own rules. And I, I guess there's this sense that, like, Hook follows rules because it's how he was raised. And Peter follows rules because he has a childish belief that the world is fair. And in the movie, they took those two and they were like, nah, they're both chaotic. And I love a good chaotic character, but it just so completely changes their motivations. It's so interesting because, you know, we always... not like people always talk about how the Disney version has like replaced any other versions of a lot of these stories. And, you know, I've seen a decent amount of Peter Pan adaptations. And I don't, I don't think that's ever been fully explained to me before, <laughs> you know, like, like even in like, I, I don't, cause I'm going to bring up hook again. Cause I've seen it a lot. <laughs> you know, I hook says to Peter Pan's son, like uh, good form, Jack, good form, you know? And, there is that good form, bad form thing in there, but like, you know, you just kind of pick it up from context clues in the movie, not because it's explained what that actually means. Yeah, so the only thing that even kind of does it 
justice that I've seen, and it's it's not the same thing at all. But uh, in Once Upon a Time, where Captain Hook is kind of a big character, he t he says good form, bad form, like that is a thing that's in the Disney movie. Like the phrase gets transported, mm -hmm. but not like the background. And in Once Upon a Time, their explanation is that he and his brother used to be like in the Royal Navy. So instead of boarding school, it was like, you've got to run a tight ship and you've got to like keep order on the ship. Mm -hmm. And he becomes a pirate in, in a way that is very fun and has nothing to do with the original story. But basically the evil king sends them to get like a weapon from Neverland. And Peter tells them like, hey, that's poison. And his brother's like, no, the king would never ask me to get poison. So Peter's like, prove it, scratch yourself. And he does, and his brother dies, like, immediately. And he's like, I guess I'm a pirate now. But he still keeps, like, some of his, like, naval training. Mm -hmm. And that at least gives some kind of follow-through. Because, yeah, most of the adaptations, like, he just occasionally says good form. And we don't know if that means, like, you have the right posture with a sword, or right. you're polite, or or anything. Like, obviously, that's a completely different origin story, but it at least gives some semblance of, like, a rigidity to rules and a reason for having that, that, like you said, I don't think any of the other adaptations really do. And the other thing that we don't get from this is, like, as far as I can tell in this version, there's not really rules of engagement between the Lost Boys and the Pirates the way there is between the Lost Boys and the Native American tribe of Neverland. Like, like they have, like, their war-making, for lack of a better term, is always shown to, to be a, a game, a play. Like, and there are rules. Like, you know, they get caught, and then they let them go. They catch the other people, and then they let them go. Like, it, there's... But with the pirates, there isn't that same play-by-the-rules kind of thing. So that's also interesting, because that's, as far as I can remember, not from the book. Mostly because they don't really have many interactions with the indigenous people. Like, it's just mentioned that they exist, kind of, and that Peter saved Tiger Lily at some point. But there's, there's not much of a rules of engagement there. What I will say is, in the book, it wasn't a play. It wasn't like the rules are there because we play with each other. It was more, it was more in line, I guess, with like, if we think about what we were told about like, the American Revolutionary War, where like the British soldiers come out and they're like, I have my guns, we're in a line, let's shoot each other. And the Americans are like, haha, I'm in a tree. I'm going to shoot you now. I think it was more like that, that Peter and the pirates have rules of warfare and you're totally able to kill each other. Like that is not against the rules, but you got to do it the right way. And it's called out when they don't. So at one point, like Hook is sneaking around doing something. And that's against the rules. So it, it's, it's kind of just a weird societal structure. It's not necessarily rules that keep them safe as much as just like how they operate. I guess that's it. In the book, there's kind of this understanding that like 
the characters don't change. And that's part of the problem that like Wendy and John and Michael are changing and they're changing things. And that doesn't work because the pirates always act the same way. And Peter always acts the same way. And Peter always will play a game. No matter what, it's a game. And he follows the rules of the game at the time. Now, he may change the rules and not tell anybody, which is a problem. But in his mind, it's a game. The game has rules. And he will follow those rules until such a point that the rules change. He won't break them. But uh, that's, that's way too deep of a discussion of, of rules for all of this. And utterly irrelevant to this version. It's just something that I noticed watching it and reading it going like, there's definitely like an emphasis on like, like, you know, I, I, there's, there's a big point where like Peter gets Hook without his sword. And they're like, oh, cool. He's going to kill him now. And he's like, no, pick up your sword. Like, there's no, there's no fun in stabbing an unarmed man. I only want to kill you if I get to, like, fight you first. And, and I guess that's what I'm kind of missing, this, this kind of structure of living and playing and fighting that I don't think is as clear in the world of children do what children do in Disney's Neverland. Yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. According to Conrad, uh, it actually only took him a few days to record all of the dialogue, uh, but he was called in for live action footage uh, on and off for, for more than two years. So there's a, a quote from him where someone asked him about like, like two years, like really? And he's like, well, it wasn't like every day. Like they would like call me in for a day or two. And then, you know, the next month I'd be there for a week. And then two months later, I'd go back in for two weeks or something like that. And it, you know, it was kind of this piecemeal section by section thing that they were doing rather than like shooting it the way that you would shoot a live action movie. Uh, he also later served as a live action reference for uh, Aurora's father, King Stefan in Sleeping Beauty. And he hosted several episodes of Walt, Dis Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color as the voice of the magic mirror from Snow White that was a like recurring bit on that show. The My other favorite voice in this movie is definitely Bill Thompson as Mr. Smee. I feel like his voice is just somehow iconic. It's a little closer to Looney Tunes territory, I think, than we normally than I would normally think of with Disney. But I, I just think he's he's really great uh, in this. There's a section that I talked about before where, you know, in the book, essentially Smee is like, oh, I don't know what a mom is. And Wendy's like, I loved him most of all. And I, I, I think we all do that a little bit with Smee. We're like, oh, he's just a bumbling fool trying to do his best. And it never goes well for him. And the voice definitely plays into that in such a way that you feel like he's always trying to be so helpful. And he's always either failing or just getting hurt by everyone around him for no good reason. And you definitely kind of get the sympathetic villain angle from him. And just to go over some other Disney roles that his, uh, his voice shows up in, uh, we'll talk about him again with Lady and the Tramp because he plays five different characters in that movie. Uh, but he is also the uh, ranger character in the Humphrey the Bear short that we talked about in our uh, 50s shorts episode. And he 
Prior to this, he was the voice of both the White Rabbit and the Dodo in Alice in Wonderland. The White Rabbit's voice being closer to Smee, I would say, of those two. And then uh, Heather Angel as Mrs. Darling. Uh, she had been Alice's sister in Alice in Wonderland. So again, some carryover there. And of course, I think the most iconic character out of this movie is Tinkerbell. And there's this great explanation of how Tinkerbell came to be. Uh, this is in the Disney Archives book. Uh, the, the Peter Pan section was written by Mindy Johnson. And the... In the stage version, she's normally, you know, portrayed as more of like a ball of light and not an actual small person. And so this was them like really doing something original that they didn't have necessarily a reference for the way that they did for, you know, all the other characters. Uh, Mark Davis, one of the Night Old Men, said, quote, she was uh, talking about the stage version, quote, she was visualized as a spot of light. But in our medium, you couldn't just use a spot of light. Walt also talked about Tinkerbell. We could make this little uh, sprite glow like a firefly as she darts through space and have her speak with the sound of bells. And so during production, there was a ton of development and revision over Tinkerbell's design. So, you know, we saw Peter Pan and Hook in Reluctant Dragon back in 1941. We did not see Tinkerbell because there were tons and tons of changes. Do you grew from a like tiny wing ballet dancer to a cherub to a a quote stocky vixen according to this essay <laughs> and so there were many 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 different versions of tinkerbell over the years and which made her also one of the most expensive animated characters to ever be developed because so much time was spent on her mark davis again says quote she's a pure pantomime character she didn't talk but you know what she's thinking and going all the way back to the 1930s, Mark Davis, uh, who animated her, found his final fairy in a, a young blonde who worked in the ink and paint department uh, named Ginny Mac. Uh, she was often called in to demonstrate the artistry of the ink and paint department for visitors and was frequently featured in photographs. She received a request to do the modeling. And she says, I was told she was a pixie. That's all they said. I used to have bangs I'd sweep to the side and frequently wore my hair in a bun. And so, so from some basic head poses, Mark Davis uh, and the other artists created a rough drawing of her, of her as Tinkerbell. You know, and she said they had her stand on a stool at one point to have her pose for, for when she would be flying. You know, again, according to this essay, Mark Davis designed Tinkerbell to be a little girl from the waist up and a woman from the waist down, which I think when you hear that description and you think of what Tinkerbell looks like, I think that does check out. Catherine Beaumont provided the earliest live action reference movement. And Beaumont says it was just movements and actions. They were exploring awareness of things within a 12 year old, as opposed to an 18 year old woman. And so they also brought in uh, dancer and actress Margaret Kelly to be the overall, the rest of the live action reference for Tinkerbell. She came in and did a pantomime and basically performed almost like a black box theater with like no props, just, you know, doing all whatever poses were asked of her and just doing her best to sort of imagine what was going on around her. So. I don't know if it's more or less impressive that Tinkerbell became such an iconic character design because it took that long to figure out what they wanted. But I mean, she is, I would say, you know, in, you know, from all the stuff that we've talked about, I would put Tinkerbell right next to 
uh, like Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket and Snow White in terms of like iconic character designs that like just are Disney. I think that's part of why she kind of took on a life of her own because in especially this original movie, Tinkerbell is not exactly a pro-woman character. She is jealous and angry and tries to murder anyone who draws, you know, Peter's attention. But the design was so perfect, the way that she looked, the way that she moved, that I think that as she moved into the modern day, this wasn't a character that Disney wanted to kind of brush aside. It was a character that they wanted to update and to really give a life of her own because she was so iconic. So Margaret Carey, one of the things that she did in her audition, they were, they basically told her to do the scene with the mirror. And so she was, you know, kind of checking herself out in the mirror and the realization of how big her hips were was something that was from that audition piece. And so it definitely gets at these fun, over-exaggerated, very emotional kind of takes. And then I think we get more of a personhood to her as we go into kind of the pixie hollow direction of things because unfortunately she was lacking in depth even if she was kind of the perfect image at this point in time i think she's pretty well developed overall for how like for how much she's actually in this movie like you know at some point she's almost a plot device but i do think that like she at least has a lot of personality like her Goals are clear, like, you know, from the very beginning, she's jealous of Wendy and, you know, I I would view it as protective of Peter, probably even more than anything else. Like, I don't, I don't know if, if Tinkerbell's really jealous of Wendy from a romantic perspective. You know, I think you, I think you can read it that way, but I think of more of a, it, it takes a more protective tone to me overall. And I think, but she's also a, she's kind of immature about it herself. And so her like tantrums and just, you know, overall just being very strongly emotional, which sounds way worse than I, than I actually mean it. But the fact that she is so, you know, expressive and, you know, so well fought and her going to hook and sort of betraying Peter also feels like it's very like against the rules you know, and it, and it makes, it gives, it gives the story stakes in a way that I appreciate. And it, and again, it gives Tinkerbell, like, she gets a character arc. It's very basic and rudimentary. And, you know, it's, it, her turn at the end is motivated by regret, not necessarily, like, apology. <laughs> she, like, she, like, tolerates Wendy because she has to get over what, yeah, the betrayal that she committed against Peter. But it's it's not like a, oh, I like you now. It's like, I, I'm going to tolerate you now instead of trying to actively murder you. I don't know. I, I struggle with Tink. One of the ways that Barry described her was basically like, when you're that small, you can only have one emotion at a time. And it consumes your entire being. And so when she gets jealous or she gets sad or she gets lonely, that is like the only thing in existence for her. Which explains why she would go from I don't really like Wendy to, you know, kill the Wendy bird. But I do think that she... 
I don't know. I think that she plays into some really negative stereotypes. There certainly are are ways to read it as as, you know, jealous as a romantic rival. But she's also just she's catty in that like girls can't be friends, they must automatically see each other as rivals way. And so I really like that as we go into her own stories, like she has friends. She has many female friends in her life that she doesn't implicitly hate. I, I don't know. Tinkerbell's tricky for me. She's iconic, but I really don't like her as a character in this movie. Yeah, and, and I, I totally get that. And, you know, I'm not going to disagree that there's not, you know, deeply embedded sexist stereotypes within her character, but... I think for me, you know, for for a movie that has very few women characters or girl characters, and they're pretty much all depicted as romantic rivals on some level, you know, I guess there, I mean, there's definitely more women, more women and girls on screen, but they don't have a lot of dialogue, I guess, I guess is because you have Wendy and Tiger Lily and you have the mermaids and some of the other indigenous people are, are women or girls, but like, they're there, but they're not. They're not talking a lot, except for Wendy. And then Tinkerbell, obviously t- speaking in her own speak. Not, I'm not going to say that she's a she's unable to speak, but she speaks in you know pixie language or, or whatever. But you know, I, I so I definitely I, I definitely understand where, you know, like I said, all, all that stuff is definitely in the character. But I think I think I overall like the betrayal of, if only because i do like a redemption arc i think it adds a lot to the movie but i'm not i'm not going to say that it's like a perfect depiction of women or even like a, a particularly good feminist character like i don't i don't think tinkerbell feminist icon is where i'm landing either part of the point of this is that we have different takes on it and i don't i don't hate tinkerbell mm-hmm as I said, if if you want to hear me rave about this movie, check out part one. Part two is where I get more critical. And I think that Tinkerbell is definitely one of those points where you kind of see there are good women and there are bad women. And the good women are mothers and the bad women are like existing to cause trouble which I think Tinkerbell is kind of the personification of in this movie, which is a little, I, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's complicated. There's all sorts of different angles that you can look at Tinkerbell out of. I haven't seen any of the, any of the Tinkerbell spinoff movies at all, but like, I'm glad that they exist and I'm glad that they exist to round out her character. Because again, I, I think sort of in the vein of Mickey Mouse, she can be so iconic that you lose any sense of character at all. And so I think maybe for me, it's just like seeing the icon have a personality, you know, and I just, I also think the way that she's drawn, like she's a very fun, like they do a lot, the comedy with her character really works for me. But again, that bit about checking out her hips, again, you can absolutely call that a sexist joke and I'm not going to disagree that it's dated, but it does also feel authentic to the character overall, at least like it's not an out of character thing, but like, you know, and so much of it is, is conveyed just through the, you know, visual, whether it be her color changing or 
just the strong expressions and things. You know, I really think that there's there's a lot of great work in there. But again, I, I also definitely see where you're coming from. So I will say that as far as characters that can't speak in their own right is concerned, to to follow, you know, Ursula's uh, speech, Tinkerbell is a master of body language. <laughs> we may not be able to hear what she's saying, but between other people kind of interpreting for us and just how she acts, we definitely know what she's thinking and feeling at any given time. And that is very impressive for a character that doesn't get to speak in her own right. Mm -hmm. One kind of fun production fact is that Tinkerbell is not speaking in bells, which is kind of what everyone thinks of because it's a tinkling bell. The, the sounds are actually made by pieces of aluminum. So that's just a fun little bit of Foley artistry. But them taking away her voice and having her only be able to communicate through others emotive enough that I don't think of her as a non-speaking character. Yeah, and, and I think for me, that, that's one of the things I really like about Tinkerbell is, you know, it is part of that, is how, how emotive and expressive she is and how we do know what she's feeling, at least, uh, in any given moment. And I think... For me, I think that goes a long way in terms of just appreciating it. And like I said, I enjoy some of the comedic gags of the character and just the overall, like the sort of the power of animation uh, to make her feel like she's a living, breathing thing is, I think is part of why I end up also just liking the character so much. So Megan, in part one, you said the music was not something you thought of when you thought of this movie originally. And I think that really speaks to how much the music changed over the years. Because, you know, we talked about that, and yet even now, the only one that I can think of is one that wasn't even in the movie, or at least the lyrics for it weren't. Never Smile at a Crocodile. I love the, like, melody to it, and so I looked up the lyrics to it, and so now it's just, like, playing on repeat in the back of my head. But somehow the most iconic song for me is a song that's not even in the movie. But yeah, there were a ton, a ton of changes. And this is another thing that we just kind of see in this era, that there were certain elements that they, they couldn't quite figure out. I think they were kind of stuck between, is it a musical or is it not a musical? So for this specifically, Frank Churchill wrote several songs during the early 1940s. Charles Walcott wrote additional songs in 1941. Elliot Daniel composed songs in 1944. And then in 1950, Sammy Kahn is how I'm going to say it. And Sammy Fain were composing new songs. And then the musical score is mostly composed by Oliver Wallace. So that's a lot of people. And kind of similar to Alice in Wonderland and even drawing from Alice in Wonderland, we kind of get this back and forth of like, let's feel this out, let's try different songs. Specifically, Alice in Wonderland had a song called Lobster Quadrille, which was stripped of its lyrics and rewritten and became Never Smile at a Crocodile. So we get kind of this weird ditching together of different songs and different time periods. 
Sammy Fain and Bob Hilliard had worked together on Alice in Wonderland on two songs called Beyond the Laughing Sky and I'm Odd. I'm Odd was basically going to be Alice saying like, I'm not like other girls way before that was kind of the standard. And they ended up just cutting I'm Odd, but taking Beyond the Laughing Sky, repurposing that to become the second start of the right. So they kind of just took pieces from all around and tried to find the best ways that they could fit together. While neither of those are necessarily super iconic songs, they definitely are kind of intrinsic to the fabric of the movie. But I guess to me, maybe the reason that they aren't as iconic is that these two melodies, uh, Never Smile at a Crocodile and The Second Start at the Right, weren't written for this movie. And so I, I think there might have just been something to the fact that they are, I, I don't know, they're, they're clearly generic enough that they could be in two different movies that I think that kind of made them less successful for me. I will say I enjoy Never Smile at a Crocodile, but I think I enjoy it more as the musical cue where you can see like the crocodile's eyes like popping up as the ticking goes than I do the actual lyrics for it or the lyrics that were intended for it. I think that's totally fair. And and for me, I totally agree with you about Never Smile at a Crocodile. Uh, it's just, that is a great melody just all around. And then, you know, for me, You Can Fly, I think of as fairly reasonably iconic, but I guess it's no Let's Go Fly a Kite, even though it has a similar kind of feel to it. But and then following the leader is probably the song I think of most with this movie, personally. And that's, again, because it was on one of those Disney sing-along tapes that I had. So I, I heard it a lot. And I, I, I find that one kind of earwormy, uh, where it, it will just get stuck in my head. So I'll, I'll count that in, in the favor of at least the songs with lyrics in this being somewhat memorable. And then there is a song that we'll talk about a little later that is memorable, but in the worst way possible. We'll talk about that in the legacy section, just because there's so much to talk about with this movie and that song in particular. So with that, we're kind of finally up to the actual release of Peter Pan. So there are a couple of different dates that were given. The official release date was February 5th, 1953. And during its initial theatrical run, Peter Pan was run as kind of a double feature with the True Life Adventures documentary, Bear Country. A lot of times these True Life documentaries were about as successful or more successful than the big movies. And Peter Pan kind of falls into this interesting realm where it wasn't necessarily deeply, deeply beloved as an adaptation so much as a Disneyification. So Walt kind of had this idea that he was bringing Barry's vision to life. And while the reviewers didn't always kind of hold that same belief, they did see, you know, enough of J.M. Barry's vision and enough of the kind of Disney style that it was generally considered successful. In Walt's words, there is no miracle the mind can conceive that the cartoon animation technique cannot create. Our mechanics of fantasy are certainly different from the ones Barry had at his command 50 years ago, 
but I think that in some ways we've come closer to his original concept than anyone else has. That's a bit of a kind of bold stance, and I think we get kind of some controversy over whether that was true or not. For instance, the New York Times said that the movie, quote, has the story but not the spirit of Peter Pan, as it was plainly conceived by its author and as is usually played on the stage. However, that's not to say it isn't a wholly amusing and engaging piece of work within the defined limitations of the aforementioned Disney style. So kind of the concept that it was fun, it was a great show, it wasn't quite what they were expecting from Peter Pan, but it was basically what they expect from Disney. And kind of on a similar, if not a little bit more positive note, Time released a review that said, Peter Pan is a happy blend of Sir James M. Barrie and Walt Disney. Ornamented with some bright and lilting tunes, it is a lively feature-length technicolor excursion into a world that glows with an exhilarating charm and a gentle joyousness. So kind of this, this concept that it wasn't, it wasn't the best adaptation ever made, but it was a pretty good movie and it was definitely a good Disney movie. I feel like we're really starting to see the idea of a Disney movie really start to crystallize. I think in part because, as we talked about a little bit, this is the last one that all of the Nine Old Men worked on. And that's where we sort of start to get this house style, especially for the feature animated films, where you can you can see that like the same people worked on this and Alice in Wonderland and Cinderella. There's sort of a a house style, a continuity of design almost in the way that these kind of evolve, you know? And I think I think all three of them, in my mind, are sort of like blue movies. Like there's just a lot of blue oh, definitely. everywhere. And so I think this idea of a Disney movie and then you have, you know, Pirates in this, you had Pirates in Treasure Island. There's there's starting to be sort of recurring themes. You had sword fighting in this, sword fighting in Robin Hood. Like you can you can see this idea of a, a Disney movie, I think, really starting to be all encompassing in a, in a way we haven't seen before. Yeah, and I find this kind of really funny because, yes, as we watch these, I kind of see connections between every movie. This one is doing the same thing that the one before did, and, and this is doing what the next two are going to do. But we kind of are cementing this idea of a traditional Disney movie right before we're basically not going to have Disney movies more than once every few years. We're going to get a whole bunch of movies that aren't our classical Disney animated films. So right as we're kind of crystallizing the idea of that film, we're going to see a lot of non-traditional Disney films that creates this kind of weird dichotomy of what's going on with Disney. That being said, as much as there was kind of a sense that this was a Disneyification of Peter Pan, it was very successful. So the film and Walt himself got a special segment of Ed Sullivan's Toast of the Town series. They basically praised the film for bringing back the Disney magic, which again is kind of funny because everyone now talks about Cinderella reviving that. On a similar note, Walt was asked how the company was doing and how he felt about the movie, and he shared the quote, I might say that Roy is wearing his Cinderella smile again, which is funny because this did considerably better than Cinderella. In They were different kind of movies and, and situations, but it did 
exceedingly well. It had a $4 million budget, which is very high, but it made more than $40 million in box office, and its lifetime gross is over $87 million. I will say there's some controversy over those numbers. I'm getting them from Box Office Mojo. But this was one of the most expensive movies that was ever made at that point. So the fact that it would bring Roy his Cinderella smile is, is really a sign that this was just exceptionally successful when it came to money. We don't see the accolades that we were seeing in the early years, but there was definitely the money. And I think Walt was finally feeling like people liked him again. Um, <laughs> you know, I think especially in the 40s, there was kind of this sense with Walt that he would put out a movie that he thought was going to go well and it wouldn't. And it would either be a critical failure or a box office failure or both. And so he just started hiding. As we've pointed out many times, Walt did not go to many of the premieres. He would kind of go out of country for the premiere just so that he didn't have to deal with the backlash if there was any. And this is the movie where he kind of does the opposite. So Walt actually attended the London premiere in April. He also attended the Mexican premiere later that year. So Walt was kind of finally feeling like people liked him, people liked his ideas again. If Alice in Wonderland was this movie that he, he kind of had to give up on because he couldn't get it quite right, this one just hit the right note, which is, is great for the moment and for its limited legacy. And I'm going to basically say that Ryan can tell you all the happy, wonderful parts of the legacy, and I can talk about the, the not-so-wonderful parts of the legacy. We, we can both talk about both, but... I, I think that that mixed legacy is is reflected in some of the other statistics we have. Like uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at a seventy seven percent positive on the critic side uh, and eighty percent with audiences. IMDb it, it hits seven point three out of ten, and I think you know that says a lot about the the mixed feelings about this movie. It's arguably, and I would I would say maybe inarguably, just factually, one of the most important Disney films from this decade. I think the the iconography that comes out of this movie and the success of it, like this is the sort of payoff for Cinderella. Like Cinderella sort of revives the feature animation idea at Disney, and it's like pretty successful. And then Alice in Wonderland, they're kind of like throwing everything at it. And then this movie, it it kind of feels like everything is firing on all cylinders. Some bad choices were made in that process, for sure. But from a technical level, you know, this one feels like it, it all comes together because, you know, they, these people made two other movies basically back to back to back. And like, this is where like the refinement of that process, like you can see a sort of a parallel in some ways of like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, where the things that the highs they hit on those later movies are higher because there's just more confidence and people building on experience and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think this is artistically in some ways, this is where that, that really starts to come together. I like that you came up with a Disney applicable uh, <laughs> comparison because I was thinking about Doctor Who, which is not how I should have been doing it, but 
for those of our, our listeners who do like Doctor Who, Stephen Moffat is a very controversial figure, but I found that the season finale, I found that Peter Capaldi's kind of last finale, not his last episode, because technically he leaves in the Christmas special, but his, his last finale has basically some of the best things that Moffat's ever done but only because he tried to do them so many times over the years and didn't get it quite right before then. So you've got a bunch of like, oh yeah, these have like great elements and they finally kind of slam together into kind of a home run of a, a season finale. But again, I'm, I'm off topic. Let's get down to business. <laughs> so Peter Pan did get uh, those theatrical re-releases that we talk about in 1958. 1969, 76, 82, and 89. It also played at the 2003 Philadelphia Film Festival, which I did not attend and have no memory of happening. <laughs> uh, and it also played a limited engagement uh, recently at the Cinemark chain in February of 2013. I say that recently, it's 10 years ago, which is haunting now. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, I, and again, those are 2003 and 2013 would be anniversary years for this movie, so it kind of makes sense that they would bring it back out. First released on VHS, Laserdisc, and Betamax uh, in 1990 in the US, and then 1993 in the UK. There was also a 45th anniversary limited edition done with THX Sound that was released in 1998, and then then it was released on DVD in 1999 for a 60-day run before it was put back into the Disney vault which kids ask your parents. <laughs> it was re-released again on VHS and DVD in 2002 uh, to promote the sequel Return to Neverland. And the it was released again on DVD in 2007 and then on Blu-ray in 2013 to celebrate the 60th anniversary. And then again in 2018 for the 65th anniversary. So it's one that they would bring out every so often as a re-release with a lot of fanfare. This is one I actually, if the if the Cinderella 4K, which is now on Disney Plus as of this recording, and available in, in physical format, some of the hand-drawn animation stuff in 4K is just mind-blowing, and the Cinderella redo is absolutely stunning, which we, we definitely talked about in those episodes at some point. But if they did a similar update for Peter Pan, I would probably buy it just because of how good this movie looks to me. And so it, it's one that sort of does get the deluxe treatment sort of the other part of this legacy in terms of its cast you know we talked about bobby driscoll in the treasure island episode you know and as as megan mentioned you know thinking about him as a boy that never really grew up in some ways uh but that's not the only tragic death associated with this movie but again there's kind of you know maybe a curse associated with just the peter pan story in reality george michael and peter uh all died tragic deaths George died at the age of 21 as a soldier in the First World War in 1915. Michael was just shy of his 21st birthday when he drowned in 1921 in what is widely believed to be a suicide. John died of lung disease in 1959 at the age of 65. And Peter, who called uh, Peter Pan, quote, that, that terrible masterpiece, died from suicide in 1960 at age 63. So there is kind of, again, this sort of weird haunted nature of the the legacy of Peter Pan as a whole. 
from the origins of the story being about J.M. Barry's brother's death, uh, going into the Davies boys, going into Bobby Driscoll, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to me that there haven't been more articles about the curse of Peter Pan, that the this story about the boy who never grew up is is kind of haunted by boys who never did get the chance to grow up. And just before we move on, thank you to Vox uh, for a great article providing the details on what happened to the Davies boys. But it, it kind of becomes this part of the legacy because Peter, who was, you know, the name of Peter Pan, with his death in 1960, brings back this version, brings back the original version, and kind of makes people question what what was the story all about? And is there something kind of darker lurking beneath the surface? So there is also a sort of iconic piece of merchandise, which, you know, again, one of the reasons why the, the legacy of the animated movies outlives the legacy of the nature documentaries is because it's easier to put these characters on something like a board game. And the Walt Disney's Peter Pan, A Game of Adventure, was a somewhat popular board game released alongside the movie. Uh, the object of the game is to be the first player to travel from the Darling's House to Neverland and back. It actually makes an appearance in the 1968 version of Yours, Mine, and Ours as a Christmas gift in that movie. I have not seen uh, either version of Yours, Mine, and Ours. Uh, How? But... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's just one of those movies that everybody sees. Next, you're going to be telling me you've never seen Cheaper by the Dozen. I have not seen Cheaper by the Dozen. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Once we get to a, a later stage here, there's. I have a feeling that I'm going to suddenly be our expert on some of these movies. So, yeah, there, there's a bunch of family movies that I just have never seen, but... Uh, if you are a person who likes that original version, maybe you might remember the board game appearing in that movie. I'm not sure. But of course, Peter Pan has a very long legacy at the Disney theme parks. Uh, not only are you able to meet Tinkerbell, Peter Pan, uh, Captain Hook, I think sometimes Mr. Smee, and Wendy in the, in the Disney theme parks, but there's also uh, Peter Pan Flight, which is one of the opening day attractions at Disneyland. Uh, and there is a version of this in most Disney parks around the world. It's a ride that tells the story of the movie. You climb into a pirate ship that is suspended from like an overhead rail, which makes it different from, you know, most of the other rides like this. You get into like a car that's on a track, but this has a thing where you are... 17 feet in the air for most of the ride where you are looking down on the story unfolding below you and around you, uh, which does give it a unique feel. The ride lasts uh, two minutes and 48 seconds, but the wait time for this ride on an average day in Disneyland in California or uh, Magic Kingdom in Florida is 45 minutes to an hour and a half. It is notorious for having some of the longest lines, even though it is a ride that is 70 years old, it, because the pirate ships move very slowly. And so the ride just does not have high capacity. And, you know, a lot of the other rides, like, it's a small world, they have huge boats that they put everybody in, or, you know, some of the other dark rides similar to this, the train is sort of always moving and you're and like you're getting on like a conveyor belt and you're getting on the ride that way 
so it, it's sort of speeds people through and churns through people really quickly. This is a slow moving ride. It takes a long time to get on, but it's very well done for what it is. The sets are really amazing. The uh, London cityscape that you fly over early on is just absolutely incredible. It has little cars that move, you know, and it's everything is in like dark lights, so it glows really brightly. There's an amazing Bing, uh, Big Ben replica, and it's all done with forced perspective. So you feel like you're even higher up in the clouds than you actually are off the floor. But like many opening day rides or and early design rides that told stories from their movies, Peter Pan was not in the ride when the ride opened, just like Snow White was not in the Snow White ride when it opened. Because the idea that they had come up with is that you were the main character. So you were Peter Pan flying through the story. But when people got off the ride in real life, they're like, where the hell was Peter Pan on the Peter Pan ride? <laughs> and so... Uh, in 1971, uh, when it was redesigned a little bit, when Magic Kingdom opened in Florida, they added Peter Pan to both versions. So that way people were, were watching the story unfold around them as opposed to trying to sort of reenact the story. But that is why it always has a huge line. And some friends and I who are, you know, low-key Disney Park enthusiasts, we are not at, you know, we are not the people who shoot TikTok videos at Disney Parks every day. Or, you, or YouTube content, of which I consume a decent amount. But occasionally we will go in the Disney Parks app and we will just like text each other like, Pan, 90 minutes right now. <laughs> it's just a very funny thing that this very old ride has just like a huge weight for it. And then the other big legacy in the parks historically was that they decided that they wanted Tinkerbell to fly to the top of the castle in Disneyland. And so in 1961, Walt Disney starts searching for someone to be Tinkerbell. Tiny Klein, who was a former circus performer known for the slide for life act that she would do, where it's a variation of what's known as the iron jaw. She would slide a great distance, you know, from the top of a building to the street along a wire in her teeth which is just sounds really painful. Uh, Megan just made a face that was just horrified by the very idea of this. Yeah, no, I, mm, that, that just sounds like you're like, that sounds like something that could easily decapitate you even like partially up the head. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to see that kind of decapitation in house of Dr the dragon. And I, I really don't think I would want to see it, like, at a Disney park. Well, I, she, she was not sliding from her mouth in the Disney park, at least. She would go from the tops of buildings to the, to the street with that, but not at the Disney park. But she, was, she did glide down a wire connecting uh, the Matterhorn to Sleeping Beauty Castle, which was something, you know, in the intro for the Disneyland TV show, Tinkerbell is there. Uh, and flies to the top of the castle. So this was sort of Walt imitating art, imitating life, imitating art uh, <laughs> in, in his own way. She was Tinkerbell for three years before she retired. Um, she was going to return later that year, but actually passed away from stomach cancer uh, before coming out of retirement. Uh, there have been Tinkerbells off and on ever since uh, in Disneyland and only in Disneyland because of the way the, the Matterhorn being there actually makes it a reasonable distance to have to cross. And so there is this sort of, you know, specific Tinkerbell legacy in the parks. And then 
very recently, like just announced last week as of this recording, in 2024 as part of the expansion of Tokyo Disney Sea, which is the second theme park in the Tokyo Disney uh, complex. They are adding a whole new Fantasyland. There's other areas themed around Frozen and Tangled, which I think are not terribly surprising. But then the other part of this is going to be Peter Pan's Neverland. People, you'll be able to explore a pirate ship, uh, dine in a secret hideaway, or encounter pirates. So there are uh, two rides in this land. There's the Peter Pan's Neverland Adventure, where you, I guess, sort of fly through Neverland somehow. And then there's the fairy Tinkerbell's uh, Busy Buggies ride, where you will help Tinkerbell deliver parcels and packages uh, across Pixie Hollow. So it's going to be a ride based on the Tinkerbell spinoff. And then there'll be the Lookout Cookout, which is the hideout of the newly updated from Lost Boys. Lost Kids is the current Disney vernacular. I think especially after the... Peter and Wendy movie that came out earlier this year that had girls as part of the uh, Lost Boys. I think Disney is subtly updating their language as best they can to be a little a little bit more inclusive. But the the restaurant there is going to be themed after the Lost Boys hideout. And again, as the reason Tinkerbell's flying across the park is because of television. Since 1954, Tinkerbell was a sort of hostess for Disney's live action television programming. Uh, and in Disney movie advertisements, uh, she shows up a ton. The Disneyland show, uh, which introduced the theme park to the public while it was being built. Walt Disney Presents, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, The Wonderful World of Disney. Uh, she is part of the sort of the opening credits of all of those movies. You know, flying in with her her wand and uh, making things sparkle, and like that's how you know you're watching a Disney TV show. In 1988, she is in the last shot of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit along with Porky Pig. She sprinkles fairy dust after Porky Pig says, uh, that's all folks, and the movie fades to black. Peter Pan was also adapted onto the Disney on Ice uh, traveling show in the fall of 1989. They kept it, the, the Peter Pan theme from 1989 through 1993. And it had a you know pre-recorded soundtrack, and then people skate around in costumes and sort of pantomime along with it. Uh, I saw not it will not surprise anybody on this podcast to know that I saw Disney on Ice as a kid at least probably four separate times. Uh, <laughs> and then the sequel, Return to Neverland, was released in 2002. Uh, and then the entire Disney Fairies franchise begins with a Tinkerbell movie that's direct-to-video in 2008. I have no experience with the uh, residents of Pixie Hollow other than that's where I presume Tinkerbell lives. Megan, is that... I feel like you talked a little bit about it last week. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not a deep... I, I don't have deep knowledge about it, but I know that... Yeah, Pixie Hollow is kind of the the land of the fairies, and there are deep arguments in the Disney fandoms about whether whether Tinkerbell is a fairy or a pixie, or if it's like a square and a rectangle kind of situation. <laughs> because technically, like it's it's pixie dust; it's not fairy dust, and it is Pixie Hollow, but it is called the Disney Fairies line. It's, it's a whole thing, but the, you know, the Disney fairies movies kind of explore what different kinds of fairies there are. 
Most of them seem to be fairly elemental, except for Tinker Fairies, which Tinkerbell is, of course, one of. We eventually learn that Tinkerbell has, like, a sister who she was not aware of. So the same kind of melodramatic elements that you might see in a TV show, we start to see some of those elements. She has rivalries, she has close friends. Um, it really just, it expands the world. And as I had talked about um, in our last episode, they also had kind of an open world game of Pixie Hollow where you could become a fairy and have your own kind of element and you would fly around and visit the different areas and collect berries and thread and things to make clothes and to do quests. And it was, it was just kind of a really cool kids version of being able to really immerse yourself in the world. But it is relatively distinct from Peter Pan. It focuses on Tinkerbell and that's kind of the big part of it. It's kind of the beginning of the expanded Neverland universe. Because as much as Tink was, you know, an icon in her own right from very early on, this was always Peter Pan. And it's again going back to the book was Peter Pan and Wendy, but the movie is Peter Pan. And there was this really, really central focus on him that they kind of start to move away from as we go from there. So in, I believe, 2012, Captain Hook is introduced in season two of Once Upon a Time, with Neverland kind of becoming the main set of the first half of season three. There are so many things to talk about there. The main one is basically Peter is the villain, which is actually a pretty common trope, especially in it's funny, in the era of villains getting kind of their backstory and us seeing them as heroes in kind of the, the 2010s, we also get the villainization of a lot of the heroes. And Peter Pan is a major, major source of that. So we see it in Once Upon a Time. He is one of the worst characters not like badly created, but like one of the most villainous characters the show ever introduced. Captain Hook is a villain, but more a villain by necessity. Whereas Peter's story is basically that like, he grew up and had a kid and hated life and decided to abandon his child and become a kid and torture anybody who keeps him from being a kid, which there, there's there's a lot there, uh, is, is what I will say. He is willing to hurt anyone and everyone to get what he wants. And basically, his quest for eternal youth, he is willing to pursue it ruthlessly. He does not care who he has to hurt to stay powerful and young. And that's something that also in many book adaptations becomes a very big deal that Peter is not a good guy. And within the original play and book, there's there's certainly elements that, like, Peter Peter's willing to slaughter people, and Peter kidnaps a lot of people. Like, there's... He was not meant to be the perfect hero, and as we see more people kind of accept his villainous role, we get to see other kind of takes on the character. 
So Captain Hook is introduced in Once Upon a Time. Tinkerbell is introduced in Once Upon a Time. Wendy is in it for a little bit. Wendy's brothers become minor villains in the show. It becomes this whole thing where basically Peter Pan is the most terrifying force to ever exist. And people will do whatever it takes to keep him from killing them. And that turns other people into villains on a fairly regular basis. Deviating from that, we kind of get the, the brighter side of Neverland in the 2015 kids series, Jake and the Neverland Pirates. We see not only, not only basically the breakdown that like pirates aren't all villains, uh, but we also see a, a lighter side of Peter although he is not as central to that show as he was in earlier versions. I've never seen Jake and the Neverland Pilots uh, because I just don't have anybody in my life who was the right age for the show at the time uh, in the preschool audience bracket. But I just like the idea that Disney was like, we're going to make a show about pirates for preschoolers. It's fine. I'm, I'm very much on board with that. I have seen uh, that came out in on April 28th earlier this year on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, David Lowry's live-action adaptation of it. And I'm going to be honest and say, I remember at the time, I liked it pretty well. I really don't remember it already at this point, but it's one that I would consider revisiting. I certainly think it's one of the better live-action adaptations, uh, in part because it references the original more than it reenacts the original the way that like the, the little mermaid is just like seeing a new live version of the little mermaid when they set out to do a live action peter pan it was very important to them that they not do some of the things that we've called out over this podcast and that we'll talk about in a lot more depth in a couple of minutes and so a lot of things were kind of cut out or changed or brought to new life, uh, particularly with regard to Tiger Lily, because they knew that they were walking a, 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 a tricky line because there are so many negative sides to this movie. Yep, and, you know, we'll talk about that in, in a moment, but just two other important pop culture connections that are probably worth mentioning michael jackson cited this version of peter pan as his favorite movie and you know that's why he named where he was living neverland ranch he had a private amusement park you know so it's obviously not growing up was a big part of the michael jackson persona and psychology uh that is a story for another time but another maybe surprising influence was on the uh, reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Ronald D. Moore cited it as the inspiration for the series theme of the cyclical nature of time, citing the opening line, uh, all of this has happened before and it will all happen again, which is also from the book, but apparently the movie was where uh, Moore really associated it from, but that being a key tenet of, of the culture within Battlestar Galactica. And I think that that theme is something that, you know, we kind of have to keep coming back to with Peter Pan, both in the story and in the attempt to adapt it in a not terrible way. Because we've already talked about so many of the different interpretations. Of course, non-Disney interpretations, they made a musical version of it. 
There was Peter Pan Live, which I believe had Christopher Walken as Captain Hook. And a lot of the things that they've been trying to do there is kind of capture the magic of the original story, the magic of the Disney version, without... And we're finally to the, the dark stuff without the rampant, rampant racism of the original book and of this movie. We've talked a lot about the sexism as we went along, but this deserved its own section. The, this movie is bad. I mean, it, it, when we're looking at it from a racial perspective, I mean, there's, there's really no redemptive factor. There are some of these movies that we can talk about different angles of. There, there are no different angles to this one. Although the racist depictions of indigenous peoples are from the source material, Disney did not make them any better. There was the frequent use of slurs and stereotypes throughout, including kind of the Indian princess theme that basically she will be rescued by a white man and fall in love with him. And they all kind of lead up to one of, if not the most racist Disney songs. We did cover Song of the South, and there's a lot behind that. And this is, uh... This is another one of those places. So if you don't know what we're talking about, as we've mostly talked around it, the song is called Why is the Red Man Red? And you can probably guess just from the title, it's it's not good. It is not in any way handled well. And I think, you know, we talked about zippity doo in our Song of the South episode and sort of there's a lot of people who may know that song and like that song and not be aware of the racial or the racially problematic origins of zippity doo But there is not a way to listen to this song and not know what it's about. And so in that regard, it's, it's certainly the most overtly racist song that I hope we run into <laughs> in this entire podcast. There may be songs in some of the live action movies that are going to surprise us. I don't, I honestly don't know, but in the animated films of which I've seen, like there is nothing that even approaches uh, this in terms of just overt taking on stereotypes and just magnifying them as much as you can in this format, you know, and it, the company is certainly aware. I mean, as, as far back as 1995, uh, Eric Goldberg, who was the director of the animated Pocahontas, expressed his belief that, quote, all the Indians in the 1953 film were caricatures, uh, which is something they were trying to correct with Pocahontas. And we will <laughs> eventually talk about why that maybe didn't happen. So even, even people who were directly employed by the company had license to call this movie out. You know, and again, at the time, part of the narrative of Pocahontas was sort of like, we need to make up for that horrible thing we did a, a while ago. Problematic elements as there were in Pocahontas, and there definitely were. At least they acknowledged, like, indigenous people as people. Mm -hmm. And there were some, some certainly more interesting takes on the, you know, racial dynamics between indigenous peoples and Europeans instead of it's not in the movie but the spirit of it certainly is the idea of peter as the great white father there is you know the idea in pocahontas that these people are dangerous and they are trying to slaughter us at least that's slightly 
delved into in Pocahontas. But when we go back to this one, there's just, there's really nothing that you can say. As of 2021, Peter Pan is not available on kids' profiles on Disney+. Plus. This is kind of a huge thing because the vast majority of these movies, they just kind of popped on there and then put up a disclaimer. This one does have the disclaimer on the adult profiles, but it isn't something that your kids can stumble on and watch without you knowing, which I think is an important move. We've talked before about, and you know, everyone's had the conversation, should we hide these things or should we present them as they were to kind of teach lessons? I think the, the overwhelming understanding is that children don't need to see it at least without context. And that is kind of the reason behind this not being available on kids' profiles. According to the company's Story Matters page, they say, quote, The film portrays Native people in a stereotypical manner that reflects neither the diversity of Native peoples nor their authentic cultural traditions. It shows them speaking in an unintelligible language and repeatedly refers to them as, I'm going to say the R word, an offensive term. Peter and the Lost Boys engage in dancing, wearing headdresses and other exaggerated tropes, a form of mockery and appropriation of Native people's culture and imagery. So they, they are fully aware that this is in here. They are fully aware that it is not okay. But there's some, uh, some questions about whether they're handling it properly. The ride still includes a scene from the movie that is clearly racist towards indigenous people. So it's not an issue that the company has a uniform policy against or about. And finding the Stories Matter page is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, it's not hidden, but it's not something that is, for instance, shown to everyone who watches the movie. Those who watch the movie still get the standard, you know, this movie may have harmful images and ideas in it, which is much less helpful than a more specific kind of nuanced approach. I advocate for that scene being taken out of the ride. I don't think that we need to keep it in there. Like, I, I want the film to be presented as is because, you know, that is an art form that, again, it's not on kids' profiles. Obviously, like, Peter Pan's Flight is one of the rides that even the smallest children that go to a Disney park can ride. And so I think taking it out is not going to affect the ride that much. And it's not something that the legacy needs to be preserved of because that can exist within the presentation of the source, the source material for the ride, which is the movie. Uh, there's nothing, you know, culturally significant about the, that version of the ride, especially because they've already changed it from the original. You know, I don't see why they shouldn't remove that scene and replace it with something else. More pirates, maybe. But it would be easy to, pretty easy to do that. And I, I hope that does happen sooner rather than later, especially as, you know, they have uh, have officially closed both Splash Mountains in the U.S. to retheme them as Tiana's Bayou Adventure after Princess and the Frog. And so I hope in a small way, they don't take out the Peter Pan ride, but they just remove those harmful stereotypes uh, and and frankly caricatures they're not even stereotypes they're outright just caricatures of a group of people and can just be removed altogether you know this is something that again has has come up and is very much a part of the legacy of this movie uh, on the platinum edition 
release on disc. You know, this was talked about by Mark Davis, one of the animators who worked on this on the movie. And he said, quote, I'm not sure we would have done the Indians if we were making this movie now. And if we had, we wouldn't do them the way we did back then. And obviously you can see language continues to progress. But that understanding of saying, if we were going to, we definitely wouldn't have done it that way, you know, if we were making it now. And maybe we wouldn't even include that entirely. Um, So that was a big question when Peter Pan and Wendy was announced in terms of how respectful it was going to be, wasn't it, was it going to include any sort of indigenous representation? So not only did they expand the Lost Boys to the Lost Kids, again, as a move of inclusivity, and there are girl Lost Kids in that movie. They also didn't include the rivalry between Tinkerbell and Wendy uh, that we talked about earlier in the context of this movie. And the that film, you know, attempts to fix it by bringing in some cultural correspondents uh, who are uh, from indigenous peoples and giving a lot of agency to uh, Alyssa. Uh, I'm I'm going to do my best with her name, but I absolutely apologize for however I end up butchering this. Uh, Alyssa Wampanoag, who is an indigenous person herself, uh, she was very much included in a lot of the decisions related to Tiger Lily, the character that she was playing as well as giving agency to the character, trying to include the actress in the way that she was brought to life. So it's certainly something that is the company is aware of, but again, whether or not they're doing enough, I think is very much open for debate. They did the moves that we keep saying, you know, if we were to try and fix some of these movies, what should you do? The cultural consultants were from the Chippewa and Cree nations. Of course, one of the important things here is that not all indigenous people have the same culture. Not all of them feel the same way. The tribe that is in Peter Pan is an imaginary tribe based on basically stereotypes of indigenous people. So it becomes a complicated issue where there aren't obvious sources to speak with. So they did their best to kind of consult two of the different currently existing nations and talk with them about their history. There's a great USA Today article that talks about how they tried to approach this, titled Peter Pan and Wendy, How Disney's 2023 Live Action Remake Fixes Problematic Animated Original. There's also a wonderful interview by the YouTube channel The Nerds of Color that talks with Tiger Lily's actress, Alyssa. Again, sincere apologies if we mess this up. Alyssa Wapanataka who essentially discussed the way that they really focused on beadwork as a way to kind of include indigenous culture and traditions in the presentations of the indigenous peoples, because you don't necessarily want to take them out altogether. It's one of the very few instances of representation they have. It just happens to be extremely bad representation. So I think that part of their attempt here was instead of just removing it, which a lot of other adaptations have done, they wanted to include indigenous peoples but do it in a better way. Uh, Obviously it's still up for debate how well they did it, and there are, I'm sure, going to be plenty more adaptations where they can play with it. However, this does seem to be a much better job than many of the other ones. I know specifically with the Peter Pan musical, 
one of the songs that they have basically makes up a fake indigenous language to kind of mock them with. And when they have tried to update that more recently, one of the controversial decisions was to change the song. So it was called, and again, this is just terrible, Ugga Wug. That was what the song used to be called, and they decided to fix it by throwing in some actual words from indigenous cultures, which I don't think really fixes the problem. But as we said, this story has happened before and will happen again with the inherent racism in the source material and in this film, which is one of the most, if not the most, iconic uh, adaptations of it. Every time they put it out, they're going to have to reckon with that issue. And we can hope that they continue to do better as they go through, uh, which they seem to have done in this most recent version. And for me personally, you know, I'm obviously against censorship. And like I said, I, I think this movie should be available in its original version with context around it. And that context, including some form of apology. But I, I, I wouldn't, this is, this is one where, you know, and has happened many times when it's aired on TV, a lot of that sequence is edited out. You know, they take advantage of needing to edit for time and sort of snip out at least some of the problematic sequences in that movie, and specifically the song. I, again, I'm not in favor of, of hiding it necessarily, but, you know, this is a case where if they had an option on Disney+, Plus where you could sort of watch that with that part cut out, as long as both versions were, avail- were, were available and clearly marked, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. I don't necessarily think that just cutting out the song fixes the problem either. That's just maybe the most painful, like the, just the most painful part of it. You know, uh, the depictions of those characters are very painful, you know, for me to watch. And I, that's not a culture that I am personally connected to at all. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be from a culture that is being caricatured in that way you know, to watch that sequence. So I wouldn't begrudge anybody from, you know, not watching this altogether or, you know, wanting to watch an edited version of this. It's a real shame because, you know, the parts of this movie that I do like, some of the character designs we talked about, you know, some of the performances, some of the technical aspects, you know, in terms of the overall you know, visual design and animation and things, there's a lot of good elements in this movie. But the enjoyment of it can really be tanked by that sequence, especially because it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. There's problematic elements that kind of lead up to it, but it is certainly a moment where if you were watching with only half attention, that is not what you would expect the next scene in a, you know, Disney movie to include. Obviously, there is a long way to go in so many ways on this. I know that, you know, every adaptation has handled it a different way. I believe the 2002 Return to Neverland just removed all indigenous people from the story whatsoever, and it just became the Lost Boys and the Pirates. That works in some ways, but it also eliminates a chance for positive representation. In Once Upon a Time, they at first made the decision just not to include Tiger Lily and the indigenous peoples 
Eventually, they introduce a character named Tiger Lily who has nothing to do with Neverland, who is oddly a fairy, uh, but not in Neverland. But overall, they, they just can't seem to figure out how best to handle it. Pretty much always seems to be either offensive or just eliminating all representation whatsoever. And I think that that is a struggle that needs to continue to be worked on. We need to think about what messages we're sending in these movies. We need to actually consult the people being represented. And that's one of the reasons that whether it's as iconic as the original or not, I do appreciate the efforts that Disney went to with this new Peter Pan version. But I think that even going further, you can't just have cultural consultants. You need to have actual writers from these indigenous groups on board, mm -hmm. people who can share their culture in a way that they feel is appropriate instead of just essentially offensiveness checking. Because there's a difference between non-offensive representation and good representation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that will be fixed, if at all, until we start actually hiring people from the community that we are trying to present. Yeah, yeah. And I think that at least with Peter Pan and Wendy, they are talking the talk and walking the walk. And again, how successful that is, you know, is not necessarily for me to judge, but it at least, I think the attempt feels clear that they're at least acknowledging that there is an issue they need to deal with. And at least making, I'm not even going to say a good faith effort, but at least an effort of some kind to acknowledge and 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 work with that. And for me, it it's clearly not as horrible as the version in this movie. You know, I, I think it's fairly objective that it's an improvement. But, you know, how much improvement is not necessarily my call to make. But, you know, like I said, if, if you're a person who does not want to engage with this movie, I completely respect that. because. It's one of those where it is so over the top that it really does start to overshadow the movie. And I think even watching it this time, I had weirdly sort of like my, I feel like my brain sort of edits, edits it out unless I'm specifically thinking about the indigenous characters because I wasn't actively thinking about it when I put on the movie. You know, and watching the beginning with, you know, the kids at home and you know, the parents trying to get ready and all that kind of stuff. I was like, man, this movie is like great. And again, there's a lot of elements that I really like about it. But as a whole, it's just it's almost impossible to evaluate in some ways because it it it's so over the top in terms of how it, it chooses to depict these characters. I think in particular, one of the things that, you know, really stood out to me. Yes, I think that there's there's a way of kind of editing around things we don't want to see. And and I think we talked about this in a less complicated way with Alice in Wonderland, where the idea of Wonderland and the idea of going down a rabbit hole and finding a new adventure, similar to the idea in Narnia of going through the closet and finding a new world, the idea of Peter Pan is one that so many people love. Neverland is a place where we can, you know, all be free and live however we want to and we don't have to grow up. And there's so many great things to that that we do try to edit. 
And I think that one of the things that makes this so hard is how entrenched it is. Because you can cut out that song, but any of the animations of any indigenous people are problematic. But one line that stands out to me is when Hook and Smee have kidnapped Tiger Lily. As they're threatening her, they not only threaten to drown her, but Hook specifically says, remember there is no path through water to the happy hunting ground. And to me, that is almost worse than some of the other things that they've done because they are explicitly trying to use various indigenous spiritualities and understandings of the afterlife as a threat. And that doesn't, to me, feel like us going, oh, Hook's a really awful person, so much as, oh my god, the writers went beyond the casual stereotype to get nitty-gritty in how cruel they were to indigenous people. Uh, that was a line that just stood out to me that I think is easy to edit out in your mind, but certainly can't be edited out in the actual scene itself because so much of that anti-indigenous sentiment is woven into the dialogue and the way that these characters communicate. And, and when I say like edit out in my mind, like it, it's more that when I think about this movie, those aren't the first images that come to my head. And I think part of that again is, is just growing up with it before I really understood just how bad some of that stuff is because, you know, especially growing up in the late eighties and nineties, like a lot of that stuff was still very prevalent because there's a lot of anti-black racism that at least had been scrubbed out, you know, where I was growing up in the like mid Atlantic, the North, you know, you know, you didn't see cartoons with people in, you know, in racial stereotypes that way. But I feel like racial stereotypes against other ethnicities carried much further forward in terms of them being considered benign by the sort of public at large that a lot of the stuff just sort of, you know, was still there when I was growing up. So it didn't stand out as much to me then, besides also just, you know, being a kid and not really knowing any better. But like it didn't it didn't jump out to me as like especially different from other things I had seen at that age. And then but like growing up with it, like even as a little kid, like I I was much more invested in, you know, Captain Hook and Smee and the pirates. And so like I think of them flying, I think of Peter fight sword fighting with Captain Hook, you know, and those are the images from the movie that I think of, you know, when I'm not when I'm not actively watching the movie. You know, and it's a shame because that we talked earlier about that wonderful use of the voice work when Peter Pan is imitating Captain Hook. And that's in that same scene as that line that you mentioned. And I think right there is like the whole dichotomy of this movie where there are things that I think are just amazing and wonderful, just absolutely great top tier Disney moments. And then immediately followed by something that makes you want to like just turn the entire thing off. Disney has done their best to separate these characters and these ideas and these iconic scenes from the original movie, from its extremely problematic elements. And I think it's one of those situations where, for me, 
it goes back to the original idea of the one rotten apple idea mm -hmm. that so often we think, oh, one rotten apple means there's a whole bag of good apples. Mm -hmm. Who cares that there's a bad one? Whereas the original meaning was one rotten apple spoils the bunch. And I think for me, as much as I really love the crocodile, uh, the crocodile is my favorite part of this movie. And the part that I was able to really enjoy for its own sake. Beyond that, I, I can't enjoy this movie as much as I want to. Because those, those moments that pop out just spoil some of those great moments in ways that I really struggle to separate them. And like I said, I, I think that's totally fair. And, you know, I can only speak to my own experience growing up and, and watching this movie many times. But it it's one that I wouldn't... I, I'm glad that, you know, kids can't stumble upon it on their own, you know, on a Disney Plus profile. And I don't have kids, so I don't have to make the choice of about whether or not I have to show it to them. But, you know, it's it's something I would think long and hard about. Because... On the one hand, like I, I want them to, you know, it. I, I guess it had to be like, well, you know, Tinkerbell comes from this whole like, you know, line of eight or however many they made fairy movies, you know, and then eventually swing back around to Peter Pan when they're like old enough to understand a little bit more. But, you know, it's just, it, it's just, it's sad. It saddens me that there's so much iconography I associate with Disney in this movie that is also marred by the inclusion of, you know, just that terrible uh, racist stuff. There are many adaptations of this story. And when we talk about Cinderella, there are definitely some elements of gender dynamics. There are some elements of the movies full of white people that are dealt with in the adaptations. But in so many ways, Cinderella gets to be a story that is adapted because people love it. And I think that while we definitely want to talk about that in that adaptation special episode, the reason in many ways that I wanted a special episode focused on Peter Pan adaptations is because I don't think it gets adapted because people love it as much as because they love parts of it and want to fix it. And I think that that's an element that we can explore and play with uh, in that episode in more depth to look at what they did with these issues, to see, did they try to reinvent the indigenous characters? Did they eliminate them altogether? How did they deal with Wendy and Tinkerbell and Tiger Lily and the mermaids as kind of romantic rivals for Peter? I think that that's gonna be a place where we really see what people have done with this story and how Disney could have done it differently or how other people are trying to take the best of Disney and really go from there. I'm very much looking forward to that because I think it's very interesting. And again, for something that gets adapted so many, so many times and is sort of part of, you know, it's one of those stories that I would say is part of the Anglo, like, you know, English speaking, like folklore at this point. Like the idea of Peter Pan almost supersedes any actual incarnation of Peter Pan you know, and how much of that is tied to some of this racist imagery that, you know, 
is in this movie and also based on the source material that's problematic is definitely something that's very interesting to track. You know, I, I'm glad that you were at least able to enjoy the crocodile. Like I said, I think, I think there's a lot of good, not racist comedy in this movie, as well as terrible attempts at comedy that is extremely racist. I really enjoy Nana getting the uh, pixie dust like on her butt and sort of floating up butt first, I think is just a very fun visual moment. Uh, I also like Captain Hook, you know, murdering the pirate singing with his very like prominent Adam's apple. There's so much stuff that I love in this movie that happens before, you know, any indigenous characters show up. And so I think because they're not till a little bit later in the movie too, that's maybe part of why I don't think of them right away. But once I remember that they exist, it it really does cast everything in, in a bit of a different light. I definitely get that. And there are there are scenes that I enjoy. Uh, I think listening to this podcast, you'll hear that there's definitely moments I'm passionate about. One that we haven't really talked about, but connecting to yours. I feel like I feel like Nana is just amazing uh, in all in all moments. But I really loved seeing Nana, you know, trying to set up the blocks and the stupid blocks get knocked down and Nana's put them back up again and they get knocked down again. I I find it a great moment when, you know, Nana and Mr. Darling kind of get into a tangle and everybody is like, oh no, and Mr. Darling thinks it's for him and then they all just go, poor Nana, because that's what I did. I was like, that poor dog. That dog is, you know, working so hard for you, doing her best. That's very much something that is set up in the books, that, like, Nana is a good nanny. Like, she does a good job. She does a better job with the kids than Mr. Darling ever has. And so I do think that there are some really great moments, and that's what makes the bad moments so, so bad. Because it does make it hard to really share the good without having to delve into the bad. I definitely understand that. And, you know, the that scene with Mr. Darling is very funny because growing up in a household uh, that often had multiple dogs, if anything had happened between our dog and my dad, we all would have definitely, like, gone for the dog first. So I, I, I always appreciate that moment. But, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like I said, there's... And, the way the movie is, you can't cut it out entirely because it would just take away from the movie as a whole. It wouldn't be a movie anymore uh, because that's how prevalent it is. But, you know, it's there's no there's no arguing that it has become iconic and so much of the imagery that you see after the initial movie eliminates that entirely, especially more and more recently. But again, we still have it on the ride in the theme park that people are waiting an hour and a half to ride every day. So I think you're being almost a little generous if you call the legacy mixed overall. Part of the reason that so much of this is coming up goes back to our kind of title for this season, Adventures in Literature. And I think if you want to go a step further, Adventures in English Literature particularly, this is an era of going back to these classic, especially British stories. And hey, that was in the period that the British were were not ashamed in any way, shape, or form with their imperialistic past and present. And I think that's just 
going to come up, unfortunately, and will, you know, be something that we can talk about as we continue forward with some of the stereotypes and ways that the British are presented overall. The idea of the British as these perfectly civilized people certainly is complicated the more we delve into the complicated elements. On that note, we are sticking with uh, British themes. So next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we will be dealing with the British live-action film The Sword and the Rose. This will be a very interesting place for us. So of course, during this era, we've dealt with such iconic stories as Treasure Island, Alice in Wonderland, Robin Hood, these, these very iconic figures. So who else could we possibly have a new Disney film from except for King Henry VIII's younger sister? Yep, you, you heard that right. That's, that's the story we're going to next. The Sword and the Rose is going to look into a romance between King Henry VIII's younger sister, a man that she is not able to marry, and a significantly older king who she's basically hoping for the death of. So, as we all know, classic, heartwarming English tales. We will get into all of that and more next time. I was going to go into the full end, but should I say something about the uh, giveaway? Before we completely wrap up, we do want to announce, and this will be on our social media, that we are going to be doing a few giveaways. So we have a couple copies of Cinderella, including that amazing 4K version that Ryan talked about earlier. We also have a couple Funko Pop figures that show both the original Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse and the, and the current version. And we are going to be giving those away. How do you get them, you ask? Well, we're going to have a couple of different ways. Uh, so we might do a couple of giveaways on our social media, so make sure that you are following us on Twitter as DreamMindHeart and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. So we may be doing some things there. We do plan at the end of this season, if we can get enough interest, to have a trivia night in which we will do trivia on the movies that we have covered, on some of the fa fun facts that we've given you, and there will be some amazing prizes for those who win that. So we'll be doing a keyword giveaway where if you will be listening to our upcoming podcast episodes, as I'm sure you all do regularly on Tuesday when they drop, you might notice a few highly emphasized words. We'll have a few keywords throughout some of the episodes in this season. And if you email us again at our email of dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com, or if you message us on Twitter at DreamMindHeart with those keywords, at the end of the season, we will do a drawing of those who have found the keywords to give out some of these amazing prizes. So as your thank you for listening to four hours of us rambling about Peter Pan, keep an eye out on our social media, keep an ear out in our podcast episodes, and you just might have the opportunity to bring home some of this Disney merchandise for yourself. With all of that being said, uh, that is the end of this episode. Thank you again, as always, to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger Spoke for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suelo.